HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. I'm Will Harris, and today's program has been brought to you by White Oak Pastures. Before 1500, there were only four printed cookbooks. Who wrote these early cookbooks? And more importantly, who read them? And how were they used? And how did they evolve into the recipe books and dining guides we know today? We'll find out on A Taste of the Past. Books have been around for not as long as one might think. They've been in printed form, of course, only since, um, well, a little before the 1500s, but certainly we had to wait for the printing press unless they were uh, handwritten by scribes. And from 1500 on, the cookbooks became very popular. And today, of course, everyone has at least one, if not many more, cookbooks. Well, today, I'll be speaking with Anne Willen. Anne, for more than 50 years, has been a teacher, a cookbook author, a food columnist, and, with her husband, Mark Cherniowski, a cookbook collector. Based on this extensive collection, she has recently published a wonderful resource book for cookbook, food, and history enthusiasts called The Cookbook Library, published by the University of California Press. Anne is recognized on both sides of the Atlantic as a leading authority on the cooking of France and its culinary history, and I welcome her today. Anne, welcome. It's very good to be with you, Linda. Tell me, Anne, how did you start? I know, I know I've met your husband, and, and you've talked about your collection. Tell me a little bit, how did this project start? Well, the roots go a long way back to when we first got married, which is more than 40 years ago. And Mark said to me, if you're going to be working in food, and I was at the time with Gourmet Magazine, he said, you've got to have some cookbooks. Um, And Mark himself was already a collector, not of cookbooks, Um, but more broadly of books on travel and kind of 18th century memoirs, that kind of thing. Mm -hmm. Um, And so he had an eye for a book. And so he would go around to used bookstores and um, pick up just modern working cookbooks. I mean, Jim Beard and, and 
Helen McCulley and, and um, Elizabeth David, and we gradually built up quite a good collection of sort of, I don't know, three or four dozen um, 20th century cookbooks. Mm-hmm. And then, of course, you get tempted to go further back. Well, well, before you go further back, what I, I want to tell our listeners, I jumped ahead in your introduction because I wanted to um, tell them that how you are a leading authority on the cooking of France and culinary history. Forgot to mention the big one. Anne is the founder of the very well-respected cooking school, La Varenne. And so you and your husband lived in France for many years. Now, that must have added to your cookbook collection. Indeed it did, um, because the early cookbooks, um, the earliest American book is 1796, and so the earlier cookbooks are European, or the ones we're interested in. Mm-hmm. Um, and so living in Europe meant Mark was traveling quite a lot, and so he would look for books um, where we were. We were living in Paris, in Paris but particularly Amsterdam, which was a great center of early printing, um, and London. And actually Italy, too, now I can't think of it. <laughs> well, so you built up a collection of, from what I've heard, over 5,000 volumes. Is that uh, correct? Well, yes, vast, vast majority right. of um, oh, 19th and 20th century cookbooks. Um, the early ones before 1800, we have about 200. Which is saying a lot, because there weren't all that many before 1800. What is the oldest book in your collection? Well, the oldest book is um, before, just before 1501, published in 1500, and therefore qualifies... Um, oh, sorry, I'm getting in a confusion. I'm thinking of the earliest... English cookbook, uh-huh. and we don't have an original. Our um, earliest book, it's not really a cookbook, dates from 1497, um, and it's um, a description of how you live, um, I don't want to say pleasurably, but correctly and easily within a monastic community. Ah. So it's all about, uh, or a lot of it, the seven deadly sins. And one of them is gluttony. And so there's a lot about feasting and fasting. Mm -hmm. So is this an incunabulum? Is it a a handwritten book? um, No, it's a printed book. It is a printed, but a small incunabulum. Yeah, we don't have... we, We have very few manuscripts. And none of them are that early. Uh-huh. Well, your, uh, the book that you've written, um, The Cookbook Library, which is subtitled Four Centuries of the Cooks, Writers, and Recipes that Made the Modern Cookbook. Uh, you, I mean, you really do cover the four centuries very, very much in depth. And so the fact that you have one of these old books um, certainly is, we're talking about 1474 to, to what, 18, 1861, something like that? Um, yes, but mainly sort of the early 19th century. I stopped kind of around Bria Savra. Mm-hmm. But though, um, I tend to get very easily distracted. 
So, <laughs> um, one of the things that I find fascinating was where a particular genre of books started. And um, so when I was closing out in the book, I wanted to talk a bit about where they were going to lead. Well, and you did so. I I have the privilege of of having the paper that you where you printed the cookbook tree of life, um, and did a, a presentation for the culinary historians of New York, and brought with her this wonderful cookbook tree of life that you made. And I have to say, it is absolutely delightful because you start with these early manuscripts, and then we're gonna I'm gonna have you talk us through it. If people can imagine a family tree, or or as you. Call it a tree of life. So we start with these early manuscripts, um, the first four that were that were ever printed. And tell us about that. Well, I was absolutely de- delighted. It was one of those aha moments <laughs> um, when I realized that there were four books that were in Cunabula um, that were printed before 1501. Um, one of them's in Latin, the first one, uh, printed in Rome, one in German, printed in Nuremberg, one in France, printed in Paris, and one in London, printed in English. Hmm. Um, and that's wonderful because it shows that the whole of Europe was thinking about writing down, um, recording what they were eating. And they weren't so much recipes and cookbooks as we know them today, correct? Well, they were recipes with titles. They didn't have, they gave a few quantities, but not very many. What, not what we think of as exact quantities. But um, they were very much instructions on how to do a particular preparation. So they were what we do think of um, as recipe books. Mm. So I guess I'm thinking as we went through the, the centuries where they became basically descriptions of, of the cultural history of life, many of these books. Um, well, indeed they did, because if you get a collection of recipes together, um, you can see what people were thinking about in the kitchen and what the people were eating on the dining table. Mm -hmm. And in the early books, you have to use a bit of, or it's fun to use a bit of imagination. But all the same, you can clearly see, um, oh, there were very few vegetables used. Um, The sauces were very thick because people didn't have plates to eat off. They ate in um, at early feasts off a slice of bread called a, a, a trencher, mm-hmm. um, and so you and they had very few e- eating or implements, and so they had to be able to eat most things with their fingers, so that the pieces in a, a, a meat or poultry or whatever in a stew had to be small enough to a hole in the fingers, and so they were usually the size of a finger hmm. um, and called a gobbit. A gobbit, and I like that. So, you know, if you look at the details of the descriptions, um, there's a little warning in one of the earlier books 
about you have to be careful using copper pans. They must be really clean um, because otherwise you're going to poison your, your diners. And that and this was this was something that actually happened in uh, when when did this occur? This was the 16th century, but 16th, absolutely yeah. it did. And there was rather a scandal because several people got poisoned and died, and it was probably copper oxide, or is it copper dioxide? Anyway, that um, the, the nasty green stuff that you get on copper pans. Right, right. <laughs> well, and then you talked about um, that they would eat with their hands at the table, so the it had to be the meat had to be pre-carved, and they had carvers, of course, right and. But we didn't get table settings until Louis the Fourteenth, correct? Yes, I mean there were table implements. Um, a diner probably brought his own knife, mm-hmm. and people, you know, most gentlemen possessed a knife. Um, possibly might be provided with a spoon. Forks didn't really get going until um, the early 16th, ooh, mid-16th century, um, and became very popular. Well, they came north from Italy and were much used with those great big ruffs that were the fashion in Elizabethan times um, because it helped you... Be- um, you had a longer reach to get things in your mouth without dropping it on the rough. <laughs> and you could spear that piece of meat and bring it back to yourself, right? Uh, well, when we get up through um, the se- the 16th century on towards the 17th, uh, it's noticeable that the books, of course, are all written by men, which is not surprising and not, uh, not unusual. But when do we... Okay, if I'm sorry to interrupt, uh-huh. no, but please. one of the subjects that I found, the peripheral subjects I found fascinating, and that was literacy. Yes. Um, who could, was capable of writing the books, and who could read them. Right. And early on, it was very, very few people. Um, it wasn't the cooks in the kitchens. They would have dictated the books. Um, and the books would have been commissioned by someone who was wealthy enough to have scribes and the money to kind of pay them, um, which was not, as it were, a really productive um, occupation. So it was the really rich, the kind of the popes, cardinals, and on the whole before sort of the early 1500s, um, the kings, not even the dukes and the nobility. Yeah. And then towards the end of um, that century, the 1600s, more people were able to read and more books were being printed and with them cookbooks. And when you were doing the research for this and and um, really looking through these old books, what was there anything in particular that surprised you or struck you? Um, uh, something new that you know that, that you did not realize before. 
Well, we were just getting to, um, it was men writing cookbooks, and that was until um, the mid-17th century, and then women start coming into the, onto the scene. Right. And that's very interesting. I mean, I was vaguely aware that women weren't writing cookbooks until possibly late, or not in English, and certainly not in French. The French women were very late into the field of writing cookbooks. The first one was probably written um, by the German wife of a doctor, and that was in the early 1600s. Mm-hmm. Um, the first books in English, the first ones were written by a woman called Hannah Woolley, and she was um, a classic entrepreneurial housewife. Uh, she ran a catering business, and she gave cooking classes, and I think she ran a shop, and she wrote um, or got printed, really, several of the books that I think she must have compiled at work, um, commonplace books, we would call them, that, w- that had a whole lot of recipes in a jumble, and uh, they would include um, household remedies and ways to clean things. Um, and so a whole new genre was, was um, developed, a huge one. Right, well, and, and after Hannah Woolley, we saw a whole spate of women then come on, on board and start writing books, household books, as you say, household books or, um, you know, housewifery books and cookbooks. Uh, we're going to talk more about this right after we come back from a short break. I'm speaking with Anne Willen. Six-year-old multi-generational family farm that works in cooperation with nature to produce artisan meats that is safe, healthy, nutritious, and good to eat. Without fail, we ensure that our production practices are economically practical, ecologically sustainable, and that the animals are always humanely treated. We never falter in our determination to conduct our business in an honorable manner. For more information, visit whiteoakpastures.com. And we are back on A Taste of the Past. I'm talking with Anne Willen, cookbook author, instructor, cooking instructor, and the founder of La Varenne Cooking School. And we're talking about her new book, The Cookbook Library, Four Centuries of the Cooks, Writers, and Recipes That Made the modern cookbook. 
And and uh, we were talking about women coming into the the field of of writing cookbooks. And uh, by the 18th century, we see a lot of of a lot of variety, a lot of variations in the types of books written. Um, I'm I'm speaking about household books, uh, uh, confectionery books, and and then general cookbooks. And this seems to be like the start of of this burgeoning industry, if you will. Yes, things got much more specialized, or the books about them. Um, showing, I think, that many more people were reading books, cookbooks, um, and wanting to know about particular subjects. Um, sort of looking at my cookbook tree, indeed. Um, the first book on baking was really quite late. That was um, Parfait Boulanger by Parmentier, who's famous for having introduced or encouraged the French to eat the potato. Mm -hmm, That's Um, right. (laughs) And there are dictionaries. They started doing alphabetical books that are sort of half cookbook, half dictionary. Um, There'd already been, um, in the previous century actually, some lovely books on carving because carving was a great gentleman's art. Mm-hmm. And um, it was something that could be illustrated in pictures. And so there are three or four really wonderful, um, very simplistic books, just of pictures of chickens or fish or cuts of meat um, with the carving lines marked in a different color, the outline of, of the piece of meat in black and the lines where you must cut in red. And so it could be distributed in several different languages. Oh, because so you did a visual manual. Right. And lovely. Yeah. Well, it, speaking of illustrations, I, I have to say that you have included some marvelous illustrations, and it's quite um, quite a few illustrations at that, and I love what I love about these. I mean, illuminated manuscripts were, uh, you know, were well known to people at you know in, in the early years. So these illustrations to have the cookbooks illustrated was not unusual. But the illustrations are so wonderful for those of us wanting to know about the kitchens of the time and the food of the time. And you've included so many of these wonderful illustrations. Uh, what which kind of hard to say which books had some of the most instructive illustrations to your mind. You just mentioned the carving book. Uh, But do you see these illustrations throughout the centuries, or was there a period where they were more popular? Well, um, the more money people had, the more you could afford to put illustrations in books. (laughs) And true today. (laughs) early books have very many but, of course, that, that's to say the um, 16th century. 15th century, there were very, very few. Um, but the early ones, 15th and 16th century, are fascinating because, as you say, you can see a picture of the actual kitchen, very primitive, an open fire, a cauldron, a spit, um, if you were lucky, only in wealthy households. And there's a definitive book by a guy called Bartolomeo Scarpi, uh-huh. who was 
chef to cardinals and to the Pope, and he has 14 absolutely wonderful illustrations of his ideal kitchen and everything that goes in it. And um, the pots and the knives, and there's a pasta roller um, and a pasta cutter, and there's a bale of straw for sticking your knives, so they're safe just like a modern knife block. I mean, it really hasn't changed in 300 years. And, and I mean, that was one of the great joys of this whole project, was when you look at what people were wearing in the kitchen, they were wearing stout boots and always a hat of some kind, which became a chef's toque because your hat, um, head gets very hot and also it gets dripped on, so you don't want all those drips getting into the food. <laughs> and um, people always wore um, stout aprons so that when they were splashed, which was all the time, um, you didn't splash the clothes underneath and so on. Interesting. So we really can learn so much about about the progress of the kitchen through these. And, well, and even right down to the types of, of, well, particularly meats, meats and pastries, pies and things that were being made. We can see wonderful illustrations of those. Uh, t- we learned so much from that. But I want to fast forward. Well, first of all, fa- well, not fast forward, but just kind of linger there in the 17th century. Why, and I want to ask you a personal question. Why you chose François-Pierre de la Varenne? Why you chose him to name your school? Uh, after him, La Varenne. He wrote the first French cookbook that outlined what we think of as classic French cookery. Mm-hmm. Um, and all on structure when I'm in the kitchen. And I think that you need to learn the scales to play the music. And so you need to know about the basic sources um, and the basic pastries, and how to whisk egg whites so that you can really make the souffle rise, and all of that kind of thing. And La Varenne was the first to really approach cooking from that viewpoint. Um, and he's the first recipe in, I think it's the third edition of, it's called a Cuisinier Francois, meaning the French cook. Um, is for stock, which of course is absolutely fond, the basic, the basis of still French cooking. Mm. Well, you uh, go through the early 19th century, and of course, they, we begin to see a bit of hero worship, if you will, or celebrity cookbooks, and that, of course. Antonin Karim, and he wrote many books and was was the chef to kings and and princes in the courts. And the cover of your book even has one of his uh, one of his seven tiered buffet descriptions. Uh, uh, so here we see the beginning of what we have today, and that is the the celebrity cookbook uh, Karim. And uh, tell us a little bit about some of his work. He's a very familiar figure today. Mm-hmm. Um, Karam worked for the Tsar of Russia, for the Prince Regent in England, um, and 
for Talleyrand at the Congress of Vienna. So he was cooking um, banquets for power dining, just like the G8 and all of these summit conferences nowadays. Um, and he was polymath. He taught himself, he says, and one must believe him, I guess, um, <laughs> to draw as well as to read and write. And every night he wrote down what he'd been doing during the day. And so one of his books um, has wonderful pull-out um, diagrams of the menus um, and the night marks the number of people and the date that um, he cooked during that day. And what he's really famous for um, in books of the amazing Pierre Monte, the great um, sugar sculptures yes. that he designed, possibly never executed. He would have done some of them um, in very bright colors in that sticky pastillage that holds up moderately well for a moderately long time, like six months. Um, and I think they would have been in very bright greens and orange and purple, what we would think of as crude and rather hideous. Hmm. And he, um, oh, designed follies and summer houses and great imaginative constructions with palm trees, all sorts of... Um, Oh, castles in the air, huh. castles in the eye. Well, he certainly did um, uh, create a quite a reputation for himself, as you say, and he's and he's very popular and well known today as well. Through this book, you you have presented in all the different centuries. You've drawn uh, some recipes that you've written for the modern kitchen, and you had to test these recipes, bring them to life, so that. Uh, a cook today could follow them. What were the challenges you faced in doing that? Well, the oldest recipes were the most difficult because it's very hard to know just what ingredients tasted like and what people were getting at. So it's kind of a bit of a guess. Um, what I wanted to do, there are sort of 40 recipes in the book, was to um, present something that's feasible in a modern kitchen that says to us, oh, that sounds interesting. <laughs> oh, nice. Um, and that we enjoy rather than saying, oh, well, I'm sure it's accurate, but I really don't like the taste. <laughs> so... Um, Oh, there are things like um, there's a nice um, pot roast from Amelia Simmons, the, um, the first American cookbook right. called American Cookery, um, and it's called To Alamod Around, and it'll have come from, um, it'd be inspired by one of the English cookbooks. And to my surprise, um, there are quite a lot in the 18th century cookbooks of recipes for pickled lemons. 
I mean, I think of pickled lemons as Moroccan, and it's salted lemons, right. sometimes spice in it. But no, they, of course, loved pickles in the 18th, 17th centuries, well, early on, um, because that gave you, gave you zesty flavors in the middle of winter when things weren't growing. And when lemons, citrus fruits, came to Europe and were not so terribly expensive, it was good to preserve them for the winter. Interesting. Well, we can see, and I'm sure you found this uh, in bringing these recipes to life, how recipe writing evolved over the centuries uh, from going to no specific amounts of, of particular foods and no cooking times to more elaborate ingredient lists and actual instructions and cooking times. Uh, I think that this this book that you have so wonderfully written and uh, and brought to light for us is, as I said, a wonderful resource for those who are are studying the history of food and just for cookbook lovers alike and um, and people who just enjoy a good read about some of these wonderful tomes because there are some there are also some wonderful uh, anecdotes in there and we might might end on one of those and that would be that four and twenty blackbirds as you say it's not just a nursery rhyme right oh joke pies <laughs> um, particularly the Elizabethans. Um, and they they would they would be huge supplies, and one of them is described is four and twenty blackbirds, live blackbirds in a great big pie that would be drawn in by probably a couple of mules in into the banquet hall, and the honoured guest or the host would cut into the pie, and out flew the blackbirds. And they would cause the ladies to skip and shriek. <laughs> well, that was a, a, certainly a, a wonderful image to uh, to leave us with. And there are so many wonderful things that one can learn from reading these old cookbooks, and gives us a little, quite a bit of insight into where we are today with our cookbooks. Anne Willan, thank you so much for being with me today. It's been a pleasure, and. That would- to talk to you, Linda. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. And um, I encourage people to take a look at the book. It's called The Cookbook Library, Four Centuries of the Cooks, Writers, and Recipes that Made the Modern Cookbook. Thanks for listening. This has been A Taste of the Past. I'm your host, Linda Palaccio. Thanks for listening to this program on the Heritage Radio Network. You can find all of our archived programs on heritageradionetwork.com, as well as a schedule of upcoming live shows. You can also podcast all of our programs on iTunes by searching Heritage Radio Network in the iTunes Store. You can find us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter, Twitter, Twitter. for up-to-date news and information. Thanks for listening. <laughs>